Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Bensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. Today is 420, and America cannabis enthusiasts everywhere will celebrate the plant with parties, ceremonies, and sessions. Internationally, we celebrate Peter Tosh Day. Peter Tosh was a human rights activist, Jamaican reggae musician, and one of the original members of the Whalers. He was a fierce advocate for cannabis. And within the Rastafari faith, cannabis is a sacramental and sacred herb and has many known medicinal properties and values. While some today will bask in the fun surrounding adult-use cannabis in recreational states, many people in the U.S. and worldwide are still incarcerated over the same plant. That is why we wanted to invite Nyambe McIntosh, Peter Tosh's daughter, to our show today to make this day more about the fight for legalization and reform. Nyambe is dedicated to continuing the fight for equitable legalization and works to carry on her father's message and legacy by servicing many roles, including executive of Peter Tosh Legacy and Brand, founder of Peter Tosh Foundation, board member at Minorities for Medical Marijuana, and advisory board member for The Last Prisoner Project. The Peter Tosh Foundation has partnered with criminal justice and prisoners form advocates and organizations to bring awareness to the dire conditions faced by prisoners and the need for prison reform in the United States. We are so thrilled to have you on our show today, Nyambi. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. So I want to start by just asking you what part of carrying out your father's legacy brings you the most joy And can you tell us a little bit about your passion around cannabis? Yes. Um, Well, prior to kind of taking over um, my father's legacy and brand full time, I I was an educator. I I taught in Boston public schools for 10 years, uh, teaching um, special education as well as mathematics. Uh, And so, um, you know, connecting with young people offering, uh, uh, you know, education to uplift them from their circumstances is something that has always been passionate. I've been passionate about. Uh, my father was an educator in his own right. You know, he used music as his medium to educate people. And um, so, I, you know, I think what I, what I'm most passionate about is just, you know, being able to transition from a, from a teacher in one capacity to an educator in another. Um, you know, I, I'm come from, I was raised in Boston, you know, and I've seen, um, so many things around me within my community where there needs to be someone stepping up and people stepping up to really make change, um, for the hardship and that exists there and, uh, the different disenfranchisement of, of, you know, that exists within my community. And so, um, Cannabis has always just been something that's been in my family. Um, you know, people always ask, you know, well, you know, who smokes cannabis in your family? And I, the, the question really, who doesn't? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and there's really, you know, a handful that don't consume in some sort of capacity. And um, although I didn't really grow up as just like a, a daily consumer, um, you know, the music has always been... Uh, a part of my fabric, as well as the the culture, you know, and I've always um, kind of 
known about um, its benefits. And it was it was kind of, you know, once it became legal is when the science, you know, the, the studies from Harvard and the scientists actually were validating the things that my father said um, in his music, you know, over 40 years ago. So um, it's always been something that's, that I would um, quietly promote. I didn't promote it in high school, <laughs> but I definitely recognized its benefits. Well, I personally am such a huge fan of your father's music. And when I heard that we were going to have the opportunity to speak with you, this was just so fantastic. And especially on today, you know, it really, you know, it's it's important that we recognize that this in America, you know, like I mentioned in the intro, we know that today oftentimes is just about the adult use or recreational side of all of this. But there's so much more to what's been going on and so much more of a story that needs to be told. And, you know, I just wanted to say from my heart, like I just feel for your family with everything that you've gone through with your brother, Jawara, and you've been so public about it and in a way to help others see and understand that we need to make changes so that this doesn't happen. So first of all, I'm, I'm sorry. My heart is with you all. I hope that you're doing okay and wanted to see if you could let our listeners just know some of what you've had to go through through this terrible tragedy with your brother. Yes. Um, in 2013, my brother was um, arrested for, for cannabis possession in uh, Bergen County, New Jersey. And um, he was held in, in jail without a hearing for three months. And in September of that year is when, um, you know, my family, my mom and I, we actually attended the, the first hearing. We, we came from Boston to go to New Jersey to do so. And at that point, or prior to that point, I really thought, you know, this was gonna be something that, um, just we'll, we'll get over. It'll be something that, you know, that will, you will go through it, whatever it is. I didn't really know the details of it, but I was like, it's cannabis, you know, it can't be that serious. Um, and to be honest, my family has never, um, um, been involved in the criminal criminal justice system before, before this moment. But on that day, uh, we heard the prosecution offer a 20 year plea. Um, for, um, for my brother. And that's when I knew that we were dealing with something, um, you know, completely different. It was a 20 year plea and his bail was set at $200,000. Um, and you know, my my brother is, my brother Jawara is a follower of Rastafari. He's a father of four. He's a musician as well as an activist. And, um, you know, in my family, it's just a way of life, you know, and, and we've been raised to, to hold it, um, the plant as a sacrament. And we understand that it's not, not only does it have this powerful medicinal benefit, but it really allows people to connect spiritually, um, within themselves and, and, you know, has that power. And so, um, you know, my brother stayed incarcerated, um, for another three months before he was able to make bail. Um, for about three years, he would uh, commute back and forth to, to from Boston to New Jersey. Um, you know, being told that um, in every meeting that you know this is his his final plea offer. You know, it went from um, twenty years then to like fifteen, um, then to ten, and every single time he was pressured. 
you know, to take the plea because uh, if anybody knows about the New Jersey criminal justice system, and particularly in that county, it's it's really a prison economy. You know, you see a bails bondman on every corner. You know, my brother shared with me that when he was incarcerated for those months, that he was in there with a 17-year-old for an ounce of weed who couldn't make $150 bail. Um, you know, that's a baby. I, I teach 17, I taught 17-year-olds. Um, and, um, you know, we were, we were really torn as a family. We, we, we know that, um, we know that we wanted to fight for what we believe in. We wanted to, you know, um, stand up for, for that. But at the same time, uh, we didn't want to be made an example of, you know, there's always that pressure and, and prosecutors often and lawyers often have that conversation with their, with their clients. Like, um, no one wants to go to trial. And if you do force um, prosecution to go to trial, then, oh, it's going to be, a, you know, a, a more harsh treatment. And so, you know, after three years, my brother decided to take a plea that um, was five years, but uh, the conversation with the, the prosecution and the, and the lawyers was like, oh, you know, you'll probably just serve a year. And, and um, you know, you'll be out after, after that and probably be on probation. And so in um, 20, sorry, in 20, at the end of 2016, my brother decides to take the plea. Uh, in the beginning of 2017, uh, January, he turns himself in back to uh, Bergen County Jail. Um, a month after being incarcerated, um, my mom and I receive a call from the Hackensack Medical Center. It's a surgeon uh, saying that um, we have your brother here, we'll get your brother and your son here, and we need to perform a life-saving um, medical procedure on him. Um, my mom actually called me frantic. She couldn't even really talk. And uh, I was the one who had to authorize this, this surgery. We had no, um, no one had contacted us from the jail. They said that he was attacked by another inmate at that point. Um, and so we immediately um, just hopped on a plane, you know, within, you know, a few hours, hopped on a plane and arrived at the, the hospital. And when we got there, um, we were first told that we weren't even allowed to see him, that we had to call the, the prison in order to visit him. And so they, they, they had us call, um, I remember the, the, touring, the touring officer and you know, they, she was just very arrogant and, and just like, well, normally we don't, you know, you, we don't allow visitation. You know, so, um, but we, we really pushed and I think it was my, I'm pretty sure it was my father's name that allowed them to make an exception, you know. Um, and so when we got into the um, surgical ICU, um, my brother had a, a neck brace on, he had tubes down his throat, um, his face was bruised, his head was, was wrapped and, um, he had a handcuff on his ankle and then mm. was surrounded by, um, <sighs> mm. sorry. So sorry. And he was surrounded by correction officers. Um, and when we, 
we asked the director of the hospital, you know, I, we were like, this handcuff cannot be helping him in no shape or form. Um, and they told us, they said that the prison has hierarchy over the hospital. And so we would have to ask the prison to release the handcuff. Um, and during that time, you know, um, you know, the next day we, we tried to make sure that we were by his side every possible way, because at this point he was fighting for his life. Um, he was completely incapacitated, um, you know, couldn't do anything at this point. And uh, the next day we called to, to come visit and um, they were like, well, they kept just giving us a hard time. It was like, well, you know what, we're, this is, you know, we, we really don't allow visitation. You know, you, you guys have a maximum of 45 minutes for the day. Um, and it was mind boggling because, you know, although we hear these, these terms, you know, you hear, um, you know, criminal, ju criminal justice reform, you know, you hear, um, you know, social equity and, and, and even criminal, you know, um, anyone that was outside of this situation would easily call my brother a criminal. And that's what we do. We, de we use these words to dehumanize people, but these people are fathers, sons, brothers, you know, and um, finally we were able to advocate and, and thank God for the support system that we had, but we were able to get my brother released um, due to his medical condition. He was in Bergen County Hospital. Well, sorry, he was in the Hackensack Medical Center um, in the ICU for um, several several months. Um, oh he was able to finally become stable um, in the third month. And, and in May of 2017, we were able to bring him to Boston, um, Brigham and Women's Hospital. And, and um, you know, not only was I, you know, kind of fighting for just his rights, but also at that point advocating for his health. You know, he's a very spiritual person. You know, uh, there was a correctional officer that came up to me and was like, you know, I don't know who would do this to your brother. You know, he he was like a preacher. He he had this big personality. He was always singing. You know, he would call us and ask us to read, um, um, you know, Bible verses to his children and um, and he would, I know it was from my mom, but he would always be like, you know, this is just, this is just like camp, you know? <laughs> and he, I think he really just wanted to just make her feel better about okay. being there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, once he came to Boston, uh, he was still, he was completely incapacitated, unable to feed himself, unable to talk, walk, um, do anything. It required, you know, us to kind of turn him every two hours, you know. Um, but we still continue to fight for his health. And we know that he would want us to. And so after um, almost two years of being in the hospital, um, I couldn't put him in a nursing home. So my mom and I, we decided to bring him home. And there we, we really cared for him. And, and it wasn't until we actually started using CBD that um, he actually said his first word. He actually said mm -hmm. my name. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was just one day I remember um, him just looking extra alert. You know, he, he was literally trying to learn how to do everything 
that we take for granted from just being able to look left and right and being able to hold eye contact. Um, and we saw that with the plant that, you know, these things started to, to develop. Um, I was sneaking it, you know, fish oil. And uh, I don't know if any, you know, you guys talk about psychedelics and this is a place where, um, you know, uh, fish oil is known to, to, to be amazing, but it's therapeutic grade fish oil uh, for brain injuries. And so um, that's when, you know, we start to see his legs and stuff, you know, start to kick and, and move. Um, my father was known as a bush doctor. So I was, I'm very much into, you know, um, stepping outside of tra or supporting traditional medicine or stepping outside of it with, you know, natural herbs. Um, and so my brother really started to, um, to make progress. It was slow. Um, it was at his pace. We were comfortable with whatever pace he was moving. Um, one day I asked him, you know, doctors told us that he, they kept wanting to tell us that he wasn't really, you know, there that, oh, he's probably mimicking this or, and I, and you, when you know, you know, you know, you're just like, no, you're in there. You know that I'm here. You know, everything that's going around. You're just, you just don't have the capacity to express anything. Um, and I remember asking him like, you know, what's your, the, the name of your oldest daughter? Cause he would have these times when, you know, with the support of plant medicine and, and, and herbs that he just seemed just a little bit more alert. Um, and, you know, one day he, I asked him that he just was like, um, JJ, um, and which is Jazara is the nickname that we call Jazara, his oldest daughter. And I was like, I, I mean, I knew you were in there, but this is testimony <laughs> that mm -hmm. you're in there. Um, and so it was, um, Sadly, you know, we, we stuck by his side for a number of years. And last year, 2020, in, um, uh, in July, um, he pretty much just succumbed to his injuries um, and passed away. And, um, you know, I spent the last three years really trying to balance. And I quit teaching. You know, once that happened I, I, in 2017, I, I had quit teaching and I knew that my life had to take a different direction um, and pretty much just, you know, support my family. Um, we're the youngest uh, of 10 children. My father had 10 and um, we really just um, continue to share his story on every possible platform to give people a context, you know, um, to why criminal justice has to happen. Um, because it's not only the person that's incarcerated, it's, it's everyone around them. And it's just not fair. It's not fair at all. Is there anything that you can do with this prison system or something to, you know, fight back with what happened? I mean, you know, is there any kind of lawsuit or any kind of movement that you can start? I mean, is there anything that you can do to kind of really stand up against this? Yes, we did file a lawsuit back in, um, uh, 2017 when it, when it initially happened. Um, and I think things just moved. We had to wait for the criminal case against the inmate that took some time. And then, um, you know, before you know it, um, COVID had kind of popped up and, and things have been moving relatively slow. So we are, um, there, it's kind of still in the introductory phases of, of the lawsuit, but we did file one. Right. Yeah. Uh, you need to keep us all updated on that. I mean, what a horror. What a horror. Yeah. And what people don't know is, um, is that prisons really get to kind of um, 
keep a lot of the things that happen within them private. There's no accountability whatsoever. Um, you know, we were fortunately uh, allowed to see my brother um, because they probably consider that they might be a negative media backlash, but so many others don't have that privilege. A mother will just get a call and, you know, find out her loved one is dead and not know that they were in the hospital or any of those things. And so, um, you know, I, I share this story to, to stress the importance of criminal justice reform. And in um, 2017, we did launch an initiative under the Peter Tosh Foundation um, called Justice for Jawara, Justice for All, for that purpose. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the Peter Tosh estate and what it looks like to be an administrator and, and you know, what's going on there? Yes, yes. Um, you know, uh, my dad was a musician many years ago and, and really being um, the executive of his estate is, is taking the intellectual property, it's his name, it's his image, um, and really looking for creative opportunities to continue on with his legacy. In 2015, we opened up the Peter Tosh Museum in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and so that was an amazing accomplishment. Um, there people can see like his M16 guitar, you know, he would say that his music is his weapon. Um, he also was, uh, you know, was a unicyclist and would perform on a unicycle. And so there's oh so goodness. many cool artifacts um, within the museum. Um, we are working on a, a major motion film. Um, we're also working on a documentary uh, in a theatrical play, which is, um, which is really, really cool. And so, um, you know, running the, the estate really is being on the phone, probably like most businesses, <laughs> you know, uh, reading a bunch of emails and, um, finding the right partnerships that allow us to, to reach a new audience and, and actually use his message. He really stood for equal rights and justice, um, and not only was it just like the legalization of cannabis and educating people about that, but, you know, back when in the 70s, he had a, uh, in the 80s, he had a song called um, Apartheid. And many people in Jamaica thought that apartheid was, a, that he made up a word because he was good for making up words. And so he, he really used music as his platform to, um, to educate uh, people about the, the society around them. And so that's what we continue to do with his name, image, and likeness. And I love how, you know, I was looking into a little bit about more what, what you personally do with this and seeing that you're an advisory board member of the Last Prisoner Project, in addition to being a founder of the Peter Tosh Foundation. I mean, that is just, I mean, you know, I know we've talked on it a little bit, but if you can just talk a little bit about the work that you're doing around there. I mean, we, we've talked about the Last Prisoner Project um, before on the show, and we, we really, you know, love the work um, that the organization is doing and what better day to talk about it, like I said, than on 420 when we know a lot of other people are making tons of money off of this plant and, you know, while there's still so many others that are incarcerated over it. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of with the the Last Prisoner Project is, is uh, our new um, Roll It Up for Justice initiative. And, you know, um, it allows for, you know, those that are, you know, busy consuming and enjoying the benefits of the plant when they go to a dispensary right at the point of sale, um, they can make a donation, you know, and, and really help um, 
continue on the work of, of releasing prisoners through expungement or clemency. Um, and um, I've been really honored to, to work with uh, Steve D'Angelo and the team there to, to continue to support those initiatives. Mm. We need to get something like that in Pennsylvania. I don't think we have anything of that at our dispensaries. Oh, we're, okay. we're on that. But yeah, let's bring it to Pennsylvania. Will, let's man. do it. Okay. <laughs> definitely will. Maryland too. <laughs> I definitely will. Take note. <laughs> so um, what are some of the festivities that you're going to be promoting and putting on for international um, Peter Tosh Day. Yes, today is is a is a great day. Not only are we um, just educating people about who he was, because so many people don't know that he was a founding member of the Whalers. Uh, my dad was like the musical genius, you know, I'm going to say that, behind the Whalers. <laughs> um, he taught Bob Marley how to play the guitar. Uh, he wrote a lot of the music. Um, I've heard different band members say that when they were in the studio, it was my father's presence that would like really direct how the music was put together. You know, he'd tell like, you know, give me some more guitar or, you know, play it like this. And so a lot of that sound that you hear and he is the founder of, of reggae, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and so it's pretty cool. It's, it's really, pretty really amazing. cool. And then, um, you know, there was a, a shift, you know, that it was actually the Whalers. It wasn't Bob Marley and the Whalers. New management came in and wanted to pull Bob to the front. And um, with that, you know, my father has a, a, a an interview where he said, he's like, I never was meant to be a, a background vocalist. You know, he, he knew that he had his own talent in his own right. And so they, they parted ways um, musically, but they had a very strong bond and he continued on. And his first album was the platinum selling album, Legalize It, in 1976. <laughs> and it's still an anthem for the legalization hey. movement to this day. Exactly. And I'm sure pumping through a lot of people's uh, <laughs> um, speakers today on 420 for sure. Yeah, so we do all of that education. Um, today, I'm actually, I have a busy, busy, schedule. And so um, there is a cannabis social justice museum um, that has opened in Boston. It's the core cannabis social justice museum. I'm a curator at the museum. It's housed at the C dispensary. So uh, today and then also yesterday, I'll be doing um, exclusive guided tours of the museum, which really gives um, the, 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 the racist history of cannabis prohibition and kind of takes people on um, on that experience to, to really, not only are you able to consume, but then you're also able to kind of learn about the history and, and how things have gone thus far. Um, we also are gonna be um, uh, on, a lot of it's virtual, so we're gonna be on Facebook uh, at Peter Tosh. And that's where a lot of the, um, we're going to have a lot of different musicians and uh, performances and really people that knew my dad personally sharing on Facebook Live. Um, and then my niece, who is the oldest granddaughter of my father, is going to be on Instagram Live. So we're hitting every single platform at three o'clock. She's going to be on Instagram Live and that's three o'clock Eastern time. And then Clubhouse, the new networking app at 420. <laughs> you guys right. can find <laughs> um, on Clubhouse. And so there'll be the festivities will, will continue. So we're really trying to make sure that we have something for everyone. You know, with the pandemic, you know, there, there 
with events being canceled, you know, across the board, you know, it's been really difficult because we haven't been able to have that camaraderie. But I will say that being able to do these virtual events oftentimes can even bring a bigger audience because more people can go. If there's just an event in a specific city or if you're doing that just in Boston, we might not be able to go. But being able to come together online and be able to participate in these festivities is so fantastic. So you heard it here, guys. Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse. I mean, Peter Tosh is going to be everywhere. Hashtag Peter Tosh 420 to be a part of the movement today too, right? Yes, yes, yes. So um, do join in all the fun. It's going to be a really, really fun day. It absolutely is. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And just being able to have this discussion today, you know, we've, we've touched on so many, you know, emotional topics that are just so personal to you. And we appreciate you, you being strong to share this, these personal stories, because we know that you're sharing them so that other people can learn and really understand and see, see all sides of, of this plant and really understand why so many of us are so passionate about doing the work towards legalization. I mean, this is why we're so dedicated to it. We want to ensure that this doesn't ever happen again. And the racial profiling continues. We, we see this in our country. We know that that's happening. And being even just females in this community, we, we've seen you know just how you know men typically run this industry as a whole. Um, and so I just have to make sure, you know, before we leave, you know, being a part of Minorities for Medical Marijuana and the work that you do there, I think is so incredibly important. So if there's anything that you want to mention that maybe you're working on with that organization, I want to make sure you have time to do so. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Minorities for Medical Marijuana is an organization that really um, is at the forefront of inclusivity in the cannabis space. Um, There are over 40 chapters around the country, which is great. One of the largest um, uh, minority organizations in the cannabis space. Um, we're constantly uh, in new states at the forefront of helping to write the leg- the legislation because so many people just think legalize it. And unfortunately, um, when that's when it stops there, the industry continues to to look like every under uh, every uh, every other industry. You know, there's underrepresentation of black and brown faces. And it was the black and brown faces that had faced persecution um, within the legacy market. You know, um, it's because of those that made sacrifice uh, and continued to support their communities with the plant is why we have it legal today. And so to completely not um, to bar you know, black and brown faces from the community and people of color. It's just, um, it just cannot be that way here. This is an opportunity that the country really has to kind of fix the, fix, at least make some direction towards just, you know, towards justice and fix some of the wrongs of the past. And so that's really the work that we do with Minorities for Medical Marijuana is is making sure that we have um, opportunities for, um, minorities to be included in the industry. We also have a boot camp that we do um, where we're preparing um, small business owners and giving them those supports, that technical assistance, really to, to get into the industry, um, making sure that their, their pitch deck is together, their investment deck is, is together, and um, really helping them transition to be able to sustain themselves within the cannabis industry. So it's, it's amazing work that we do. And it's nice to, to see um, these small businesses um, actually be prepared to enter the space. I just think um, what a lovely person you are, that the tragedy that's, you know, 
been part of your family and you're still out there fighting the good fight and helping. And, um, you know, I learned a lot uh, listening to your story today. And it, it is, it, you make it real. It's hard to believe that we're going to dispensaries and, and people are making money and others sit in jail still because of this plan. Yes. It's just, yes. It, it's unfathomable really. So what can our listeners do to support you and, and help with all of these movements? Where can they go? How can they be supportive? Yes. Um, the, the best way to be supportive is to um, go to petertoshfoundation.org, you know, definitely support the nonprofit. Um, through there, you can support that's supporting all of our initiatives that we have on. And then to celebrate the day, if they want to learn more about International Peter Tosh Day and all of the festivities, uh, just go to petertosh.com. So, and do share the hashtag PeterTosh420 today. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking thank the time you. out of your busy day. This is a big celebration. <laughs> yes. um, we appreciate you so much. Um, and we will be sure to share all of the links on our 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 social media pages on our website. So everyone will know, you know, visit um, our website for all the information for this. We'll be partaking in the festivities and I'm kind of obsessed with Clubhouse. So I know what I'm doing at 420 today <laughs> yeah. for sure. So, well, thank you again so much, Nyambe. It's been such a pleasure getting to get acquainted with you and speak with you today. And we're definitely there to support you fighting this good fight. Um, and we'll be with you along the way and hopefully you can come back and visit us again sometime. Most definitely. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of The Vine featuring Neombe McIntosh. We appreciate your support of The Vine, a plant media project podcast, and you can tune in on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. For cannabis and psychedelic news, please visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Music.